<clears throat> working our way through a few a few different chapters over the Advent season, the, the month of December, really, the whole month of December will be in Hebrews. Man, and Hebrews is so, it, it is so packed with so much about Jesus um, that um, there's, a, there's a lot to be said about uh, who Jesus is. And this is just one book, this is one book of the Bible, but even just in one chapter of one book of the Bible, just there is so much packed in here. And so, so we're going to need to have some, some good listening ears today and some good focus today, um, just like we do every Sunday, but there's a lot here, and I, and I think it's all good because um, <laughs> it's in the Bible. But, uh, but, but I know that, that, it can be, that it can be a lot, so, um, so let's, let's have ears, ears to hear God's word today. So I'll read for us the entirety of chapter 2, and then we'll dig in. This is God's word. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is God's word. It's entirely true, and it's given to us in love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, give us minds to understand. God, I pray that the distractions of, 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 of the week that we just came out of or, 
or the distractions uh, and the worries and the anxieties that we may have uh, for the week to come would not um, keep us from hearing uh, the glorious message of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ once again this morning. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there seems to be uh, sort of a pattern in our world. So we're, uh, you, you may have heard me say this before, but that we're, we're all meaning makers. So we're, we're all trying to make meaning out of different situations in the world and um, different things in which we go through. Um, but one of the things that, we're, that we try to make meaning out of are words. And so there seems to be this kind of common pattern in our culture where we, where we want to redefine words. Words that have, that have been in you know, the dictionary and defined clearly for many, many years. And then all of a sudden we can begin to shift those words around because we don't like what they actually mean. So if we, can, if we can take a word and we can reshape the same word to make it something different, and, and typically the reason why we do that, the reason why we try to reshape words, is we want to make it fit within a belief system that we've created. And if we can get enough people behind it, if we can get enough people behind this redefinition of a word, then it will take on this new meaning and it will stick. Think of what we've done with marriage in our culture. We have redefined it. It doesn't mean the same thing it meant 100 years ago or even 50 years ago or even 20 years ago. Think about what our culture has done with, with Christmas since we're in that season. I know it's, it's always funny to me when people get upset that Starbucks doesn't say Merry Christmas on their cups. And I'm like, why would they say Merry Christmas? But, but still, at the same time, uh, it's a good example of that phrase, Merry Christmas, and how that, that phrase has been almost removed from our culture. And now you hear more and more when you're at the grocery store, people say, Happy Holidays. So there's a shift, there's a redefinition of even the time of year that we're in because we've changed the words around. Now this isn't just something that's happening out there in the big bad world, but that's something that happens right here in the church, and that is currently happening uh, throughout, even just in the American church, is that we are redefining words so that it fits some sort of belief system that we have created. And I can tell you right now, the place where this, is, uh, where this shift happens within the church is a redefinition of who Jesus is. That, that if, if when we begin to get Jesus wrong, everything else will, will follow in the wake of that. So this is why the, 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 the author in Hebrews goes to great lengths to give us a, a biblical theology of Christ. A Christology is the theological word. And he does this primarily by pointing his readers to the scriptures. Over and over again, the author allows God's word to define who Christ is and what Christ has accomplished. Because if we try to redefine who Christ is, just on our own, just kind of on our, our emotional kind of whims that kind of come and go, we'll wind up with something other than biblical Christianity. Jesus might be included in that mix, but it's not biblical Christianity. And so in this morning's text, we're going we're gonna to look at this. And the way that we're going to look at this is, is by looking at three ways 
that God deals with human beings. And then in, in, that, in the way that he deals with human beings, uh, we'll, we'll begin to see Christ revealed to us uh, much more clearly, I think, by the end of this text. So he does three things here. One is the warning to human beings. Two is the problem with human beings. And then three is the solution for human beings. So the warning to human beings, the problem with human beings, and the solution for human beings. So first, the warning to human beings. Look at verse 1. The author says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. So, you know, basic Bible study is if you see the word therefore, you want to look before what, uh, what, what that word is, where that word is and say he's talking about what came before this particular word. So, so what we do is we look back after chapter 2, verse 1, to the entirety of the argument that is laid out before us in chapter 1 that deals specifically with the author declaring for his Hebrew audience the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And the way in which he is showing that Christ is supreme is by pointing uh, his audience to another kind of a group of, of heavenly beings, spiritual beings, known as angels, and then comparing Jesus to the angels. And so in chapter 1, verses 5 through 13, he walks his audience through, uh, through a catechism, this kind of Q&A that declares the real truth about, about who Jesus is in comparison to these heavenly beings. And he does this by pointing them back to seven, seven different passages in the Old Testament. He uses God's word to define who Jesus is. And so by the end of chapter 1, we have this pretty clear picture of not only Jesus' supremacy over angels, but we also notice the uniqueness of Jesus Christ compared to everything else in the world. So we learn that he, is not, he, that he is the son of God. He's not an angel, as some religions teach. That, and, and the way that's proved is that he is actually worshipped by the angels. That he is the king, that he is, that he is lord over all of creation, that he is seated at the right hand of God. And there is no angel that can make these sorts of claims. In fact, chapter 1, verse 14 says angels are actually the ones that are sent out to declare these truths about Jesus to those who are to inherit salvation. So, me and you. These angels are sent out to declare this message. And then we get to chapter 2, verse 1, and we are told we must pay much closer attention. Pay much closer attention. Why? Well, for one, this is the glorious message of the good news of Jesus Christ being proclaimed by the heavenly beings. So if we don't pay close attention, the danger is we will begin to drift away from this glorious message. I said this a couple of weeks ago in James, uh, when we were looking at James chapter 5, that you are either wandering from the truth of the gospel or the truth of the gospel is keeping you from wandering. You are in one of two camps. There's no middle ground. You're either wandering away from the gospel, or the gospel is keeping you from wandering. This is the same thing the author of Hebrews is saying to us here in verse 1. 
These, these Jewish Christians, we, we already know from, from last week, um, were in danger of falling away from the faith that they once held close. Because they started to believe, due to some hardship and some suffering and possibly some persecution, that because of these hard things, God no longer spoke to them. God no longer cared about them. God was no longer close to them. And so because of this, they begin to think, we'll just go back to the old ways. We'll go back to, the, to when those things were, when things were kind of put in place, those, those uh, sacrifi- sacrifices that we needed to make on a daily basis and those, those, uh, those uh, feasts that were in place that, that reminded us of, that God was close. So they're starting to drift. Now, drifting is not something that happens overnight. If you think about it, think about when you're uh, maybe a little tired from a long car drive and you begin to, to kind of think delusionally that you can take a quick nap when you're driving. I've been there. Um, and then your car begins to drift from one side to the next, and it's, it's gradual. And you don't realize you're drifting until sometimes it's too late, until the tree is right in front of you or the other car is already too close for you to make any sort of reaction. The same is true for the Christian life. The drift is gradual. It doesn't happen overnight. And oftentimes you don't realize the drift has happened until disaster is already upon you. Some of you may be drifting now. C.S. Lewis illustrates this in the fictional work, The Screwtape Letters, in which one demon named Screwtape is giving advice to a younger demon, his nephew Wormwood, about the best methods for getting someone to abandon belief in God. And so Wormwood says to, uh, or Screwtape says to Wormwood here, he says, you will say that these are very small sins when he's just getting, he's just saying, hey, just, Put these small sins before people. Even just like the slightest annoyance at somebody's uh, boots creaking on, on, the, on the hardwood floors of an old church. Or somebody's shrill voice when they're singing the hymns that are meant to be beautiful. You will say that these are very small sins. And doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wicked, wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy, God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. And our author here tells us in verse 3 that this all begins with the neglect of this great message of the gospel. That when when we neglect the great message of the gospel, that is what begins to pave this cushy road to hell. He says, referring to the judgment that will come upon us in verse 2, he says, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? He describes it. He says, God 
will have justice upon sin. He's already done it part and parcel in the Old Testament. We've seen it. We've seen his justice invoked. And the author tells us here, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So essentially what he's saying is it's delusional to think that if you neglect the gospel, that somehow, somehow you will receive blessings from God. That's delusional. We see this in the newfound world of, of what, we've, what we're calling now deconstruction that masks itself with the idea of, well, I'm just asking questions. I'm just curious about this or that in, when it comes to spiritual things. And that's kind of the realm in which someone lives. But when those questions are not sought within the scriptures, the drift is inevitable. It will happen, and it will continue to happen. We see this from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3 when Satan comes to Adam and Eve and says, he asks a question to Adam and Eve, did God really say? Did he really say that? And the minute they engage, they begin to drift. Now, how do we avoid this? How do we pay closer attention? Well, uh, one way to do this is by recognizing the signposts. As C.S. Lewis illustrated there in the screw tape letters that, that there are when the drift into hell has no signposts. That you get rid of all signposts, you get rid of any kind of warnings uh, that could that could be flashing before you, any kind of red flags. So we have to recognize the sign the signposts. So one, and I borrowed these, these are not my original ones. So but one of these is a fixation on the here and now. This is a signpost that you have, a red flag. So if you are fixated on the here and now, that is a signpost to say, I might be drifting away from the gospel. So your heart is consumed with the very things uh, that Jesus said not to be consumed with. And these are things that we hold near and dear. These are things like uh, our families. These are things like the homes in which we live in, the homes that God has provided for us. These are things like the, the, the job that you possibly love, the job that brings in uh, a lot of income for you and your family, that, that allows you to have lots of things that you want and desire. And Jesus says, don't let those things consume your heart. Because if they do, you are probably on your way to drifting. So a fixation on the here and now is the first signpost. The second is a failure to be cautious. A failure to be cautious. So Paul warns in his first letter to Timothy, he says this to Timothy. Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching or on the doctrine. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. So this happens... When the words of Christ, the Bible, are read as a suggestion rather than the authoritative word of the creator of the universe. As one writer said, we must, we must pour our engagement with God's word through the filter of God's word rather than, rather than our human emotions. For as the word of God says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. 
who can understand it? So a fixation on the here and now, a failure to be cautious, and the third is dwelling in doubt. Now, I've, I, I've spoken about doubt before and the benefits of doubts, and the reason why I say that doubt is okay is because we all doubt. You probably came in here this morning with some doubts, and those doubts are okay, uh, but they're not okay if you are just dwelling in those doubts. And you never, you never seek to get out of those doubts. So if you remember in James chapter 1, he speaks directly to this. In James chapter 1, he instructs the Christians that, that, that our questions that we have, our doubts that we have, must be directed at the one who can answer them. So he says to us, if you lack wisdom, ask God for wisdom and he will give it to you. He'll give it to you. Now, there's a couple of things that need to be set in place in order to see these signposts. They're not just going to appear out of nowhere. Then I've said these, these before as well, and I, there's, no, there's nothing new under the sun, uh, but there's two things that you, that you need to have set in place in your life. Uh, one is a, is a steady diet of the Bible, a steady diet of God's Word. And that's not just, a steady diet is not just on Sunday. None of you eat one meal a week, one, time a, one, one day a week. None of you do that. You have a steady diet. And the same is true with the Word of God. You need to have a steady diet of God's Word. And I say steady, I mean daily. Daily in God's Word. Letting the Word of God change you. Letting the Word of God wash over you. And there's many different ways that you can do that. So James tells us to be hearers of the word and not, I mean, uh, to be doers of the word, not hearers only. So, so the, the word of God is we're hearing it on a Sunday, we're hearing it throughout the week, and then we are doing it. So the word, a steady diet of the word, and then the second thing is, is community. Now, and I, and I don't just mean in general community and you surround yourself with other believers and you kind of pick and choose where you want to go and, and what you want to do from many different places. When I say community, when Kevin says community, what Kevin means with community is the local church. The local church. That you need to, that he, that you need to bind yourself to a local body of believers, which means you need to join that church. You need to covenant yourself with those other believers. And it doesn't have to be here. But if you're not a member of a church, find a church that you can covenant with and join that local body and, and because of what the Bible says about that. This isn't just me wanting you to come to Christ the King Church. Hebrews chapter 10 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The, the, the author of Hebrews is talking about the gathering of the local church in Hebrews chapter 10. So if you neglect to meet with each other, if you neglect to show up here Sunday after Sunday, I can guarantee you, you will drift away from the gospel. Because you will have nobody in your life that is able to point those signposts out to you. 
And I just, just another, just one more quick point in there. It's like, why would the Bible tell us this? Why would the Bible be so clear about meeting together if it weren't important? And then still some of us continue to do that. It's sin. If you refuse to come and gather and meet together on a regular basis with the body of Christ, you are walking in sin. And the devil will use that to draw you away from the gospel. Now, if we don't heed the warning that is before us, then we will be overwhelmed with what our second point talks about in verses 5 through 13, and that is the problem that we all have as human beings. So in these next verses, that the author is going to show us the problem that we have as human beings by, by communicating to us the plan that God has laid out for humanity. And so in communicating this plan, he is also communicating the problem that we all have. And, and despite what you may, may think or believe about humans, that you may have a really high view of humanity, despite what you may think or believe about that, we are not plan A. We're not even plan B or we're not even plan W. This has always been, Jesus has always been the plan. From the very beginning of time, he has always been the plan. And so we see this explained in verses 5 through 13, uh, but we also see very clearly the problem that we all have. Look at verse 5. The author lays this argument out for us. He says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. So here we learn that angels were never the plan either. Angels have always been given one task, which is to reflect the glory of God to his, to, to his creation. Chapter 1, verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? We see this at the birth of Christ in Luke chapter 2. The angels come before the shepherds and they say, they don't say, hey, look at us. Look at how beautiful and scary we are. They say, no, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is their primary role. Announcing that proclamation to us. So if that's the case... Why was the first and second chapter, uh, why, did, why did he spend so much time talking about angels? Well, th there, was, there was some in the church in, during this time in the book of Hebrews that placed an undue honor to angels that took the place of Jesus. Now, this has happened, also happened in our culture as well. Because I, I used to work at this Christian bookstore a long time ago. And man, we had book after book after book on angels, and people ate them up. Love learning about angels. So part of this is understandable when you consider how angels are described in the Bible. Every instance that an angel arrives on the scene and comes before a people in the Bible, the first thing out of the angel, angel's mouth is typically, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Because an encounter with an angel was a glorious encounter only because they, they are beings that reflect the glory of God. Remember, these are angels are those who stand constantly in the presence of God, worshiping Him. Isaiah 6, 1 through 3, describes them in this way. 
In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. throws the, the whole idea of these little cherub, little fat angels that run around during Christmas time. It just throws all of those ideas in the garbage. Angels were terrifying. In other places in the scriptures, it talks about, you know, not only did they have six wings and they're covering their face, but they had multiple eyes. They had more than two eyes. Just scary, scary creatures. And this is why the author of Hebrews spends so much time comparing these glorious beings, angels, to Jesus. He wants them to see that even though these beings are so glorious and so scary, and, and, and just and you can barely even lay your eyes on them, Jesus is so much better and greater than even these beings are. Now, this may not strike you in the same way, because worshiping and adoring angels uh, may not be something you, you struggle with, but the point is the same. The point is the same. Don't be so easily impressed with the things of the world. This is why Paul can say later when he says that, um, that even if, if an angel comes to you with a message other than what I have proclaimed to you, don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. Don't get caught up in just the beauty of it. Don't get caught up in the things of this world. Just because it sounds good and sounds nice and, it, and it's kind of appealing to your ears and to your mind does not necessarily mean it's true. There's lots of people now who are peddling the gospel and they'll use Jesus' name and they'll use spiritual language to make you think that it's true and it's not. So when you find yourself drifting towards those sorts of things, what the author is implying you do is to hold them up to the greatness of Jesus and then see how they compare. Ask yourself, what am I chasing and how does it compare to the glory of Jesus? And I think once you honestly engage in that sort of exercise, you will very quickly see that you have been wasting your time chasing the wrong thing. So if angels aren't the plan, it has to be me and you, right? Isn't this what the world tells us? Isn't, isn't this what, the, what it says to us? You can change the world. It, it's all about, about you making the world a better place, especially if this is all there is. If this is all there is, it is up to you and to me to make it better, to make it uh, more of a comfortable place in which we can live and eventually die in peace. But even more devastating, this is what the church oftentimes tells us. That you are the center of the universe. That God is at work for you. I mean, just Google the top ten worship songs that are, that are popular right now, that are getting played on repeat on the radio, and you'll see very quickly that most of those modern worship songs are selfish. They are not about God. They are not about the gospel. I was listening to one last night, and 10 minutes long, I didn't listen to the whole thing, um, but it just 
It was just repeated the same thing over and over again. And the words I and me were repeated way more than the word God. It's a selfish motivation. It's, it's, it's telling us that you are the center of the universe. But we're not. But let me just say this, this sort of a side note, that, that even though we're not the center of the universe, this does not mean there is nothing unique or special about human beings. In verses 6 through 8, the author show us, shows us who we are as humans and what we're made to be and do from Psalm 8. It has been testified somewhere, meaning it's in Psalm chapter 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So Psalm 8 is really asking, what are human beings? And it lets us know that human beings, born and unborn, have glory, glory and dignity and honor. Why? It's not because we've done anything world-changing to deserve it or could do anything world-changing to earn it. It's only because Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27 is true, that you and I are made in the image of God. So verse 5 hints at the uniqueness of humanity as compared to the angels because it's not angels whom God subjected the world to, but humans. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, he gave dominion to human beings. So we are greater than angels, and, and one day we are going to rule the world. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go, to, go to, to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to, tr to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So this helps us to understand that if we are set apart in a special way by God... And verses 6 through 8 shows us this in two ways. Two ways we're set apart. First, that we are to reflect God's glory. So verse 7, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. So this is what it means to be made in God's image. We, we reflect something about God that no other creature in the world does. We reflect his glory. Second, that we have been designed to rule God's world. We hear this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So step one, fill the earth with my image bearers. Fill the earth with my image bearers. And subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. As one commentator said, God made human beings to be the guardians, protectors, and rulers of his world. He intended it that way for his glory and our blessing. But here is the rub. Things, unfortunately, have not gone this way. Look at verse 8. Our writer 
brings this up by saying, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So what he's saying here is that while God did design everything to be under the dominion of human beings, at present, right now, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Simply put, we are not ruling well. And we're not reflecting God's glory well. Back to Genesis chapter 3. Instead of ruling over angels, it's kind of ironic that it's an angelic being, Satan, who deceives Adam and Eve to follow him and rebel against God. And the result was that God's design for the world was profoundly broken. So what this proves is that you and I are not plan A either. When responding to a newspaper inquiry that asked the question, what is wrong with the world, the, the, uh, the Catholic theologian G.K. Chesterton and writer responded, simply put, he, he responded this way, Dear Sir, I am. I am the problem with the world. I am what is wrong with the world. And he's exactly right. You and I are the problem with the world. And, it, and if we are the problem, we can't be the solution. So our author has built this entire argument here, using God's word, to show us our need. To make us see that we do come up short, that we fall short of the glory of God. And so what we can see a bit more clearly is the reality that our third point shows us, and that is the solution for humanity. That if we come up short, we need God to solve this for us. So Psalm 8 describes for us who perfectly fulfills every aspect these verses are describing about humanity. Hold on, I'm just missing my point here. And the human he speaks of here is Jesus. Jesus, the king of the universe, humbled himself and became a man and perfectly fulfills everything you hear in Psalm 8. And so the author kind of exegetes Psalm 8 for us really quickly in verses 8 and 9 to show us that Jesus is the true Son of Man. That Jesus was made lower than the angels. That Jesus is the one crowned with glory and honor because of his death. And that Jesus is the one who has everything in subjection under his feet. Another commentator wrote, and, and because he is the perfect human being, he can deliver us from the problem we have got ourselves into. By becoming human, he was able to taste death for everyone. So for further clarity, if there was any doubt that this text wasn't talking about Jesus, uh, even as you saw it appear in Psalm 8 in the Old Testament, with no New Testament references... Remember that Hebrews is written to a primarily Jewish audience, Jews that have converted to Christianity. So when they heard this, this psalm read of Psalm 8, and they heard that phrase, the Son of Man, their thoughts would have gone back to the description of the Son of Man from the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, which says, I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. 
And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. They knew that their, the author here was describing the Son of Man who was the Christ. But how does Jesus accomplish all of this? Well, look at verses 10 through 13. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are, who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. So these verses are an, an accurate portrayal of what Jesus has done for us. Specifically that he is our elder brother. Now some of you may have really sorry elder brothers that are just that were mean to you, that were spiteful, that didn't treat you well. But this is not what we're talking about here. This is not a resentful elder brother that kind of held things over you and, and, and never helped you out. But this is a, Jesus is an elder brother who doesn't patronize you. Jesus is an elder brother who doesn't kind of hang things over your head or make you feel guilty. Jesus is an elder brother who comes into the muck with you. And the muck is not just general uncomfortableness, okay? The, the, the muck that we're talking about here is your suffering that you're currently experiencing, your pain, your sin, and your eventual death because of your sin. And also, the picture here is not Jesus kind of like reaching his hand down for you to make the move and reach up and grab it. He's not just sitting here doing this. No, Jesus is getting in there with you, and he is actually lifting you up on his shoulder and pushing you out of the muck while he stays in there for you. That's the picture that our author is seeking Paint for us. So to describe the extent of this in verse 12, the author quotes one, ver one verse from Psalm 22. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Now, just seeing this verse out of its you know, greater biblical context doesn't really mean much to us, uh, unless you have a really good memory concerning the Psalms. Uh, but for the Jewish Christians that understood that this one, that they understood that this one quotation from Psalm 22 was pregnant with meaning concerning who Jesus is. So if you, if you go back and read the first 21 verses, and I'd encourage you to do that later this afternoon, of Psalm 20, 22, you'll hear the detailed description of one who truly trusts in God and at the same time, finds himself utterly forsaken by God. Psalm 22.1. This may be a more familiar verse to you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And then the, the verses following verse 22 show us that this cry has been answered in verses 23 
24, then in verses 30 through 31. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Posterity, future generations, shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. That as a result of this suffering, salvation has been accomplished. Jesus has done it. So what is accomplished in our salvation? Well, first and foremost, in verses 9 through 13, we learn that Jesus' death is our death, that Jesus' glory is our glory, and that Jesus' holiness is our holiness. To quote another commentator, he says, Jesus died our death, he gives us his holiness and will lead us to glory. In Christ, God promises to make us into the kind of humanity he originally designed. This was always his plan. The writer of Hebrews puts it, this, puts it plain this way in verses 16 through 17. He says, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, which is all of us, Paul tells us in Romans. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So if we need a merciful and faithful high priest who is able to make propitiation for our sins, this means that none of the other earthly priests that walked the earth met this criteria. And that also means that none of their sacrifices that they made, and remember, they spent all day making sacrifices for the sins of the people. None of their sacrifices were sufficient enough to turn away God's wrath toward your sin. So apart from Christ, what this means, apart from Christ, the wrath of God stands against you. I don't care how nice you are. I don't care how much money you give to this church or to other charities or how much good that you think that you do throughout the week. If you are walking apart from Christ, the Bible says the wrath of God stands against you. And in order for justice to be invoked, this wrath needs to be satisfied. This wrath is, needs a sacrifice, and this is not a sacrifice that you have in and of yourself at your disposal. It's not something that you can kind of take out as like a shield that blocks the wrath of God like you're fighting some dragon that is, that is blowing his fire upon you. You don't have that. Later in Hebrews 10, he makes this clear when he says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and the blood of goats to take away sin which we could, we could just translate that to say is it is impossible for you to do anything in and of yourself to take away your sins, to deter the wrath of God. So this means that the old way of doing things no longer applies because the old way of doing things can never satisfy the wrath of God fully because God's wrath demands a perfect sacrifice. And that is not something that you have. We did not put forward Jesus 
to God to turn away his wrath. It's God who put forward Jesus to provide a propitiation for us. And it's Christ, in obedience to the Father, who by taking on human flesh, so being made like his brothers is what that means there, in every way, it's only then that he becomes our merciful and faithful high priest who gives himself to make propitiation for your sins. So we're getting getting in the deep end here a little bit, okay? So stay with me. Because we have to understand the solution. To, To understand the solution fully, we need to know what this word propitiation means. It's not a word that we ever use. If you've ever used it in a sentence for any, any reason, please come see me. I'd love to hear what sentence you used. Um, it's not a word that we use ever, really. And it's really not a word that is used in the Bible that often either. I think it's used about six or seven times in the Bible. This word, propitiation, spe- specifically. But a definition of the word is this. Averting the wrath of God by the offering of a gift Specifically, it refers to the turning away of the wrath of God as the just judgment of our sin by God's own provision of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Okay, so it's important to know that the author chose this specific word for a reason. He wasn't just using the word so that he could appear smart. He was using the word propitiation for a specific reason, okay? Some of you may have other translations other than the ESV, and those translations might use this theological word, which is expiation instead. Now, I'm going to say this. If that word is being used in this verse right now in your, Bi- in your Bible translation, it's wrong. And I give you permission to scratch it out and write propitiation there because it is a bad translation. So it's important. Remember, we're meaning makers. We will change the meaning of things to make it fit our theology. We'll make it to make it fit, to make us feel better, to, to, to cushion things for us. So this is an important distinction because some of you, some, some use this particular word because they think it's a better, not because they think it's a better translation of the Greek, but because they are dealing, because they want to uh, soften the blow. They want to let you know that, that God's wrath, it, it really isn't, isn't real. That God is not standing in judgment over you. That you are actually a really good person. And that really only he needs to say the word that he forgives you. But what we're dealing with is two different words with two different meanings. When we're talking about propitiation and expiation. And so to, 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 I had to go to the New Testament scholar Leon Morris. Who is, who is If you're going to study anything about the atonement or anything about expiation or propitiation, any of these big theological words, uh, Leon Morris is the guy to go to. And so he compares the two words. He says this, propitiation means the turning away of anger, expiation rather, making amends for a wrong. Propitiation is a personal word. One propitiates a person. Expiation is an impersonal word. One expitiates a, a sin or a crime. So you can see where this can get problematic because it creates a whole new biblical theology if you use, if you use expiate instead of propitiate. Because to expiate is to 
have the, uh, have the wrath of God be absent in your theology. And if, and if a biblical theology is absent the wrath of God, then our sin is downgraded to not quite as serious. Or worse, not deadly. And so we begin to think that, that, that sin is just kind of this mere smidge on our record and that can easily be forgiven with a word. We won't see ourselves as the problem. We won't see why our sin had to be paid for the way it did. And this is why I think there is this rise in deconstruction. Because we think we can't be that bad off. We're not that bad off. That God, who is supposed to be a God of love, would, would, would never condemn people to hell or, or punish his innocent son on our behalf. That's absurd. That's crazy. So I'll create a system of beliefs in which God's wrath doesn't exist, even though it's very clearly taught in the Old and New Testaments. This is not true biblical theology. This is not true biblical Christianity. True biblical Christianity teaches us that you are more sinful than you ever dared imagine. And because of your sin, God is angry. That's why he's angry. That's why he's wrathful, because of your sin. And his anger is justified because of his love. This is how one pastor put it. Anger is how goodness responds to evil. And because of God's anger against our sin, his wrath will be unleashed. And the only way for this to be satisfied is through one who will take on the wrath for us. And that one we know to be God's only son, Jesus. This is how 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22-24 puts it. He says, quoting from the Old Testament, from Isaiah, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth, speaking about Jesus. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So God's solution in Christ lets us in on the great reality that our author speaks of in verse 18. That because Christ has suffered in this way, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And that means Christ in every way has shared in our flesh and blood that he knows everything that you are going through or will go through. He knows your, your current struggles and he is able to to help. So Christ's death, this is what it means that, that Christ became our, our faithful and merciful high priest. That he is the one who is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. This is what makes us confident to go before his throne of grace. Because Christ has gone before us as our elder brother. The um, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright put it this way. He says, there is nothing that you face today or tomorrow or the next day in which Jesus cannot sympathize, 
help and rescue you and through which he cannot forge a way to God's new world. Because Christ has proved himself to be your propitiation. There is nothing in all the world that could ever separate you from him. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that even in this in these great theological works that your that your word lays before us that can oftentimes be very difficult to understand, that you are continuing to just communicate this very simple message of the gospel. That you from the very beginning had this plan to 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 make all things new, not in angels, not in ourselves, but in Christ alone. That you have made Christ our propitiation. That, that Christ didn't just suffer broadly, but that he suffered specifically for my sin, for the sins of every individual in this room. That he was made our sacrifice. And so God, we thank you that you uh, have sent your only begotten son. And, we, and, we, and we, we praise Jesus who was obedient to the Father that he would leave his throne and come down into the muck with us to lift us out. And so we pray with great thanksgiving because of this. In the name of Christ, amen.